0: Welcome to the Drag Quest Podcast. I'm your host, James Orr. I've got my co-host, Bob Borland, and today we've got Mark Penninger. We're going to uh, talk some Kodiak Island stuff today. Uh, how are you doing today, Mark? Good. Uh, we appreciate you joining us. We're uh, out at the Pope Young shoot in Brownsville, Oregon today. Uh, big broadhead competition tomorrow and uh we're just uh kicking back the uh, sun's going down and I'm excited to talk about some sick blacktail deer.
1: All right. All right, Mark, uh we've been talking to Mark a little bit. Thanks for coming on. Uh Mark's been up to Alaska a ton. He's done a lot of banquet speeches for us at the TAO and and uh, he's a wealth of knowledge. He's been up there hunting about everything. Uh he's heading back up there this year to hunt mountain goat and blacktails again. And he he knows about everything there is to know about him. So we're gonna pick his brain a little bit, and uh, maybe before we get into that, you could give us a little background, Mark, just kind of on yourself and how you got into bow hunting and why the traditional thing is, is stuck with you for so long. Sure, uh, well, I
2: grew up back east in North Carolina, just out of Charlotte, uh, but out kind of a rural part of Mecklenburg County. There a lot of dairy farms, and uh, you know it was it was a fairly wild place for back there as far as uh, low density housing but we're not too far out of the city and so I grew up trapping hunting fishing but just small game with shotgun and rifle and I went to North Carolina State University I got a wildlife degree uh, fisheries and wildlife sciences with a concentration in wildlife and I was always fascinated about the public lands out west and I knew there were a lot more job opportunities out here so in 89, right out of college, I accepted a spotted owl survey job out in on the Willamette National Forest out of Detroit, Oregon. And I worked there for three years. Um, then I got a permanent over in John Day on the here. I worked there for a few years and then moved to uh, La Grande, Oregon uh, as a fisheries biologist for about two years. Then I switched back into the wildlife field. And so I've been there on the Willow-Whitman Forest for over oh, the last... 20 years or so. Okay. No and uh, since I, I worked at La Grande Ranger District for several years, and now I'm out of the supervisor's office, I oversee the wildlife program for the, the Willow Whitman Forest. And I, uh, for the last eight years, uh, h- half of my job has dealt with bighorn sheep all over the West. Very so cool. Anywhere there's a, an issue that involves National Forest System lands and bighorn sheep, and they need my assistance, then they'll call me in and I'll try to help help solve the problem so and
0: that's just you're just in oregon doing that or you that that was all over the west okay all over the west up
2: until for the last eight years but currently um i'm only doing the sheep and and some mountain goat work in region six which is oregon and washington and the rest of my time i deal with other wildlife species there on the wallow whitman but um i was doing the national sheep work for about seven or eight
0: years and you're doing some Rocky Mountain goat work too, aren't you? I saw you were doing some survey work with them just last week, weren't you?
2: I help ODF and W. Anytime they need help over there for either surveys or captures, um, and I'm available, I'll give them a hand with that kind of thing. Um, otherwise, you know, I've helped with, uh, with things like uh, documentation, environmental documents for helping move the mountain goats off of the Olympic Peninsula over into the central Cascades of Washington. Oh. That's a big project the National Park Service has kicked off. And uh, if the funding's there and everything goes well, uh, we may start moving goats next year. Oh. Um,
0: and, and the uh, you're replacing these goats?
2: Well, the thing is, they're thought to not be native on the peninsula. Okay. And there's no evidence that they were native there. And the Park Service, you know, they some of the legislation that, that they have to follow says they will at least attempt to get rid of all non-native species out of national parks, and in that situation, the national forest circles, encircles the park, and the goats live on both national forest system lands and national park lands. So my agency wouldn't be a very good neighbor if we weren't party in this, and they tried to eliminate the goats, uh, and we weren't part of that because our goats would just keep repopulating the park. Copy. So it's a real c- collaborative thing between the state. Um, and the forest service and the park service and besides those goats that are in the park are not accessible to sportsmen um they're having some localized impacts to the vegetation and all so the idea is to get them off that peninsula and put them in the cascades where they we will have access to them as sportsmen mm-hmm. and where we know they were native well, and the, and there's some herds that are have been struggling over there so these could augment those populations
0: it wow. seems like a very rewarding career definitely um getting to work with wildlife and being being in the great outdoors
2: parts of it parts of it yeah yeah. (laughs) some of the meetings and writing and reading and those things aren't the most exciting
0: but politics right that's a little bit of that
2: everything's everything's got some of that yeah yeah. (laughs) but so anyway um back to how i how i got into archery i mentioned i all i did was hunt small game and fished and trapped back east but when i got out here i had a roommate in in government housing there at uh detroit and he was a bow hunter from wisconsin and he used a compound and at that point i really didn't know that archery hunting was an option and so he introduced me to a bow and we went
1: what year was this i mean about 89
2: okay so we went down to salem and i bought a lynx uh what is that martin Martin lynx Lynx. uh, yeah 50 percent let off it shot about 210 my dad, feet My dad per second. my uncles <laughs> had those things,
1: man. Those were awesome. <laughs> and
2: <laughs> You know, and after a, a year or so of growing pains and trying to figure that out without much of a mentor, really, um, I started killing some animals with it. And next thing I you know, you know, I some years I'd get a deer, antelope, elk, you know, and all in a month's period. And after a few years of good success, um, I ended up meeting Jim Akinson. Uh, some of you guys may know him from... He worked for the backcountry hunters and anglers. Jim's a good
0: friend of mine. Yeah, uh, yeah he's a great yeah.
2: guy. And he's a mentor and friend of mine. Yeah. Um, but we both lived in the same community. He was uh, between stints in the backcountry of Idaho at this time, doing work on bears and cougars around Le Grand there. And um, we met, and I went to the field with him some. And he said, "Do you need to? I think you need to try a recurve or a longbow." And I thought i don't even know what that is so you're gonna have to show me <laughs> so he kind of got me hooked and he helped me find a used uh, uh bob lee signature takedown 62 pounds at 27 inches
0: uh you couldn't find a better uh, <laughs> you could you couldn't you couldn't find a better uh mentor than jim akinson
2: yep so i started shooting aluminum at first and then i switched to wood and um and then i had this period of transitioning between the compound and the and a recurve that was kind of painful because when you go from experience a lot of success to hardly any
1: yep Um, that same and so
2: you know i would go through this pattern i thought i know i'm not unique this way but i would uh carry that stick bow for uh, several weeks and then i would miss a shot and i'd go throw it in the closet and grab my compound and go out and shoot something and then i felt kind of empty it's like well yeah, I got a f- tag field, but I knew I could have done that with that other bow. <laughs> so I did that for probably four or five years until finally I pretty much switched switched over to the stick bow and said, I'm going to do this or, you know, or I'm going to fail. Uh,
0: that's what uh, Norm Johnson would call a slow learner. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <I'd>, <laughs> I'm a slow learner,
2: too. Yeah. Well, I can't argue that. <laughs> um, but, you know, when, when it all finally came together, I think it was on a cow elk uh it the satisfaction was uh, beyond compare of any other type of thing I've done in the outdoors of mm-hmm. uh, all my kills with a compound or a rifle or a shotgun having that just knowing that the energy stored in those limbs that came from your arms and no no sighting mechanisms no release nothing it was just the simplicity of it and the hard work that went into it when it all finally came together i was really hooked so
1: and then you you never went back, did you? No. No, not uh, after that. I yeah. still,
2: um, you yeah, know, I, I won't probably ever experience the level of success I did with the wheel but I get enough to keep me interested. And, yeah.
0: um, and And the people we're surrounded by in this community oh, yeah. also keeps me, um, yeah. you know, drawn to it. For I, sure. I agree. Like this event, the, the first time I came to the Pope Young seven, eight years ago, uh, I was kind of, had both but you know i still had the compound and it was it 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 laid it out for me i was like these people are amazing this community i want to be a part of this i think that that was part of it for me
2: i agree same here the quality of folks are just uh they're amazing phenomenal most of them are willing to help you answer questions help you with your research on hunts equipment issues you name it yeah and you know this kind of event um it's not uncommon if some guy breaks his bow or something accidentally a stranger will give him an eight hundred dollar bow and say, "Here, when you're done with it, drop it off on my truck." Yeah, yeah. there's not many c- circles that you can do that with that level of trust. Yeah, you yeah. Know.
0: yeah, definitely. So, w- did, were you? We're going to talk some black blacktail deer. Okay. Did you um, have much interest in hunting the Columbia blacktail deer first? Do you hunt them presently? And how did you transition to going to Alaska and heading to Kodiak? I'd love to hear, you know, kind of how that all. Well,
2: yeah. So working at Detroit, I was exposed to some pretty nice Colombian blacktails. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, my district there went up to the crest of the Cascades. And we had bench leg bucks uh, that had characteristics of, of uh, blacktails, but kind of mixed with characteristics of, of mule deer. And you see that in the pattern on the tail and they had enormous racks, and we're talking 160 class bucks. Right. Uh, but they looked more, in their pelage color and, and everything looked more like a blacktail. Right. And then you come on down the valley closer to Mill City in that country, they looked pure blacktail. And so I used to hunt them up in, in Thomas Creek and Mount Horeb and a lot of that country around Mill City and Lyons. And then I was using that old Martin lynx, and I, I got a couple bucks down there, one really nice one. Um, but once I moved to John Day, I was kind of hooked on mule deer and elk, and I've only made it back periodically. And then the last several years, I've been using a muzzle loader for whitetails, um, and that's how I've been uh, using my deer tag. But this year, I have a general season archery deer tag, and I plan to come over and hunt blacktails. Very cool. We yeah. had such a hard winter, I, I really felt sorry for our deer this year. We lost yeah. 30 or 40 percent of our mule deer population and the rifle tags uh, were reduced to reflect that. Yeah, and, um, it's a
1: good thing they did that. That's Yep, yeah.
2: so I'm not even going to hunt mule deer over there. I'm just mm-hmm. going to save that tag and come over for hopefully a couple times to uh, hunt blacktails.
0: I know Jim's been coming over for the last few years to hunt blacktails. Are you going to join him? Or? You know,
2: I'm going to talk to him about it. We don't have any firm plans yet, but yeah. uh, if it works out, I'd love to come over yeah, with him. Yeah, that's awesome. So, but, you know, Alaska has always fascinated me, and I, from reading... Uh, talking to other guys, I've learned about the Sitka black-tailed deer. And when I first started researching my my first trip up there, uh, it was about 94. I was in John Day still at the time. And uh, most of my focus went to southeast Alaska. And uh, I talked to several guys. Uh, Larry Jones was one. Uh, Jim Ponciano, a buddy of his, uh, he referred me to him. And Larry referred me to a couple different guys. They're all extremely helpful and a lot of several of them talked me out of going to southeast and said you ought to go to kodiak they th- they th- they thought i would enjoy the experience better um at would see more deer uh, for just a lot of reasons so i switched my research from southeast to kodiak and in 96 uh me and two other guys went up there with with compound bows at the time that's before i switched over um and we uh we hunted a far western side of Kodiak. A, p- a bush plane dropped us off in September. And um, we didn't kill any deer with our bows. And uh, it was a learning experience. We had some bug problems. We didn't have bear problems, but we were stuck in the tents for about 72 hours because of winds and rain.
0: When you say bug problems.
2: You know, in Alaska, whether it's Kodiak or interior or southeast, you could have mosquitoes Black flies, no C.M.s. Um, What's the other one? Say white socks, no C.M.s. Black flies, mosquitoes. Any of those four, and if there's a lot of them, and you don't have a breeze to keep those things off of you, they can eat you up and make you miserable. So (laughs) if you go earlier in the year, say August or even early September, um, you want to have a head net. And you have your hands covered and even possibly take some duct
1: tape and put around your sleeves and your the cuffs of your pants yeah, to keep for, the bugs out. I've okay. heard stories of guys offering 500 bucks for a <laughs> head net. <laughs> I've, I've and, heard that. So it must be bad. So after several trips later, after that initial one, I've kind
2: of learned that if you're, if you're going to Alaska north of, say, Fairbanks, anytime after mid-August, uh, Insects are usually not much of an issue because they've had a hard enough freeze already to kind of knock them back. Okay. If you're going um, southern, uh, further south than that, which Kodiak is further south, um, anytime after, say, mid-September, you know, you've know you had a pretty good frost and bugs are not that okay. much of an issue. And so of all my trips, uh, only that first trip were they a little bit annoying, but I've heard nightmare stories about people who react pretty pretty severely to insect bites Mm -hmm. and they get bit around their brow and above their around their eyes and their eyes swell shut and they're they sit in their tent until the bush plane comes and gets them
0: miserable yeah yeah (laughs) so uh, at what point did you give up the the compound and go to the trad
3: bow
2: well 97 so 96 is when i did that first trip to alaska jim introduced me to the recurve in 97 and so it was about let's see 91 92 is when i pretty much switched over. And um, then subsequent trips to Alaska, I never carried a wheelbow bow after that. Uh, so I've taken a recurve or a longbow since.
1: Nice. So when you go up there, you're getting dropped off at a lake, the, those early season hunts? Is that the um i mean let's talk logistics a little bit for yeah. the do-it-yourselfer yep yeah let's um, talk
0: like starting in the lower 48 how you put this together and, okay. and, and the, to where you land and
2: well you, you got you, cons-
1: you didn't go with an outfitter right you kind of just uh, okay
2: correct just did it myself um just me and my hunting partners uh kind of figuring things out and doing our own research mainly talking to other hunters and calling bush plane pilots and you know things like that so we figured out what the options were and then decided on what kind of experience we were looking for and one of the popular options up there is to go on a charter boat so it's basically an outfitted hunt usually you fly with in a bush plane with floats from the town of Kodiak out to a bay you land pull up to a boat and uh, that boat hosts you for the next week or so they feed you uh, you're, you're sleeping on a comfortable boat and you don't have to deal with bears during the night. You don't have to think about mm-hmm. them. So th- you go in during the day and hunt, and then you come back out to the boat at night. I decided I didn't want to do that. I wanted the full Kodiak experience, um, thinking that seeing the bears and learning to camp with them and, you know, tolerate them um, sounded kind of exciting to me. Uh, I learned a I learned a lesson. It was more excitement than I would bargained for <laughs> on one trip. And um, since then, I think my, my knowledge of the how to be, how to use uh, bear etiquette properly has, it's evolved. And now um, I carry an electric fence with me, uh, a portable electric fence, put it up around my sleeping tent. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they want my food, they can have it. I can survive, you know, if they get into the uh, food. And but...
0: that does protect you. Yes.
2: The the state game department up there, they they use portable electric fences around fish weirs and their employees use them all the time in high, de- high bear density areas. And because bears investigate things with their nose, um, they'll come up to that wire, and their wet nose of theirs will get zapped, and it repels them. Okay. But I was skeptical when I first heard about it because I thought you got six-inch thick hair, and then you got another four inches yeah. of fat, you know, and the thick skin between. How is a bear even going to feel this? But it's all the, the nose, I think, is the key.
1: Have you ever been in your tent at night and and heard one get zapped?
2: Um, not zapped, because when I, once I started using that fence, I sleep like a baby. <laughs> but the second trip I took up there, well, let me back up just a little. That that first trip in 96, um, I was much younger, uh, very little experience, no no Alaska experience. Yeah. So we learned a lot about footwear, uh, insects, how well tents stand up to 60-mile-an-hour winds, mm. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, and how to deal with meat in that kind of setting where there's no trees. Yeah. Yeah, we, we learned a lot, but I thought that was going to be my once- my one trip to alaska in my lifetime now i'm planning my i think it's my 14th this year
0: wow. do, you, do you use the um floorless teepee style shelter I- on a hunt like that i do
2: now um and i have for the last four or five up there but it, before nice. that i used just a, a, f- I had a i have a really nice uh, eureka four season tent i took on that first hunt and it's just as sound today as it was then wow but the older you get the less exciting it is to get on your knees to get dressed and you know
1: you, up and down. You get the bigger floor. <laughs>
0: I hear you. You get the bigger fl- uh, floor print. But is bugs a problem with those short, with those style shelter where you're the the, floor of the shelter?
2: It hasn't been for me because back to that timing thing. You you time your hunt. Doesn't go anymore when at those that latitude. Are bad. Yeah. I, I don't okay. I don't expose myself <laughs> to those bugs anymore. Okay. And, and yeah. are,
0: you, are you a bear spray guy or a gun guy for for defense? Bear spray
2: a yeah. uh, gun in camp bear spray when i'm in the field now you're and talking
1: in camp not use a shotgun a lot of guys use a shotgun right in camp
2: I've, I've carried a 4570 marlin lever gun okay but i a shotgun i think is preferable um that, that 4570 or any really big caliber rifle has the most stopping power the thing is in a in a situation where your, your adrenaline's going it may be dark it may be windy rainy very close quarters, things happening really quickly. Most people don't practice with a firearm, whether it's a handgun or a rifle mm-hmm. or whatever. A shotgun, you've got more margin of error there with a with uh, slugs and double alt buck alternating. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's the safest way to go if you had to shoot a bear. But, you know, from all the friends I've talked to that live up there and have had a lot more b- more bear experience than me, and my limited amount of experience you know, the best thing to do is for you and the bear both to walk away healthy and Absolutely. happy. And we did have one bad trip, my second trip up there. Uh, Tom Van Ash is one of my hunting partners from Albany. Yeah, he was with better. me on that one and, and two other guys. He and I were shooting stick bows. The other two were compound hunters. And um, we came back. We, we thought we were going up late enough to where the bears would be hibernating. It was in November uh, and as soon as we got there, one of the biologists up there said, well, you, you're probably going to see some bears. They're still out and they're active. And there's hardly any fish in the streams at that point. So they're looking for gut piles, um, trying to lay on that last bit of fat before they go to go into hibernation. And we saw bears every day. We had close encounters um, where we'd just walk up and there's a bear at 40, 50 yards. And you see each other and usually the bear runs the other way. Well, one night... Um, one of the guys was with us from Missouri he had shot a really big buck and he didn't find it till right before dark and Tom and I had had several bear encounters that day so we came back to camp early just to want to make sure camp, camp was protected and this was before the uh, before the electric fence, fence. tool came into the scene <laughs> and so we were kind of shaken up a little bit because of all the bear activity well my, our friend Kurt Came back into camp, and he said, I shot a really nice buck, and uh, we need to go back out and get it. Well, now it's pitch dark, because days are fairly short in November. Uh, it gets dark, I'm thinking five thirty, five somewhere in there, pr- quite, quite early in the day. And um, we all said, we're not going back out there. There's bears everywhere. And he had not seen any that day, so he, he wasn't nervous like we were. And he says, well, if you're not going to help me, I'm going to go myself. And we all agreed that we're not going to send one guy out there. Either we all go or none of us go. So we agreed to go. We went out. We we worked up his buck and came packing back into camp. We walked into the little opening right beside the lake where our camp was. And we had two tents set up. And uh, one of my buddies said, look, there's a deer over at our food bucket. And we had our food in five-gallon buckets with lids sealed. We're thinking that would cut down on the, on the scent. Mm-hmm. And... um our, our headlamps were kind of dim, and we had one lantern there. And I looked over, and I saw these eyes about 20 yards away where our food was. And about that time, it rose up. And I just happened to look down, and one of the tents was completely destroyed. Mm-hmm. Just ripped to shreds. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's a bear. And I took my shot. And I had a, Mo- a Mossberg Model 835 pump, I think. And I fired a shot over its head. And it came running towards us and then veered off and went into the brush. Oh. Yeah, and you, yeah, I don't think you could have four grown men so <laughs> shaken at that moment. We had deer on our back, our, one of our tents destroyed. We haven't really taken inventory of food yet. Uh, so once we got settled down, and uh, the bear was in the in the brush popping his teeth, we fired a few more shots over its head, and we heard it run off. Well, it had eaten all of our food. Uh, it even opened some of our freeze dried meals and and uh, scattered those around. Apparently, it didn't like the taste of them uh the one tent was destroyed tom's uh sleeping pad uh, his extra pair of boots the bear just was kind of selective on what he wanted to tear up and then then we discovered it had gone inside the other tent because we left the vestibule open and there's these big wet footprints on my sleeping bag (laughs) and a big hole in the roof so he did poke a hole in the other one Uh, so that started the next two nights that were extremely long nervous nights uh tom actually published a story in Traditional Hunter several years ago. It's called uh, Drizzly Days and Grizzly Nights. And it, it, doc- it documents that nightmare of a story. Uh. And at that point, and that's when you start making deals with God. If you get me out of this, I promise I'll never <laughs> whatever. <laughs> and one thing I promised myself is I would never go back to that site ever again. Well, enough time passed. I was back there two years ago. <laughs> we were just yeah. talking about that. Yeah. <laughs> we were just talking about that. Uh yeah, how a that pack works. Packout trips. I'm never yeah. gonna do that again. I'm never going to that canyon again. <laughs> yeah, you you can find up find yourself renegotiating those deals yeah. with God later. But yeah. um so after that experience I I started thinking, man, we gotta do something different about these bears just so I can sleep at night. Yeah. And uh so I researched the the portable electric fence thing and you know, I got fiberglass poles, cut them in half. I used a little uh, plumbing collet thing to uh, reattach them with a zip, zip tie. And mm-hmm. so they break down into shorter pieces. Right. They're easier to transport. And the whole, I haven't weighed it, but it's probably 10 pounds. Um, what kind of battery does it? Well, the the power unit, I can't remember the brand, the, okay. the brand but it uses four D cell batteries. Okay. And you should take two sets of those with you. Don't run out and of uh, if you question the power of those things on its high setting just ask russ morgan he's another tao member he's the state wolf coordinator he w- he went with me last time and we were in my shop and um he didn't have the best hearing i think from shooting a shotgun for several years and he didn't hear the motor he's li- he's watch- looking at it and examining this thing and uh i could hear the tick tick yeah. that tells you it's on he, yep. did- he didn't hear it <laughs> and those contacts touched him in the belly and I thought he was going to go through the roof of my <laughs> shop. <laughs> it woke uh, it woke him up. I hate to tell stories on him because he can't be here to defend himself. Uh, that's but awesome. we both, we did sleep like babies on that trip. Yeah. The last couple uh, when I used that thing. Um, I know I have had deer to run into it at night, and we just we see the tracks and we assume that a buck had come walking through and it yeah. gets its antlers and it, you know, throws it up and knocks it down temporarily. Yeah. We just We repair it and going about our business but it's uh it makes you makes me more comfortable and yeah
1: for sure you got to be able to sleep yeah <laughs> yeah.
0: so <laughs> you're hunting these deer primarily in november it sounds like
2: i like october and november like i said i've hunted them in the southeast in of alaska in august i've hunted them on kodiak in september october and november and where i've kind of settled is late late october early november is you can still get into some of the lakes, some of the best lakes, and get out before they start freezing up. And most of those air taxis up there, once they have their floats on, uh, when they take them off, they're not going to switch over and put them back on. So if they drop you off on a lake too late in the year and it ices over so they can't land, you may be looking at a pack of several miles and you got to decide what equipment you're taking out with you. And you're not going to want to leave a fifteen hundred dollar TP or titanium yeah. stove or that kind of stuff, yeah. and just hiking cross country in Kodiak uh, with is, with a lot of gear is, is not a pleasant thing. Yeah. So most of the, those pilots are experienced enough to tell you we probably can't drop you that late on this lake. Okay. So and these are just taxi
1: services. Correct. Right? Yeah. Correct.
2: They don't okay. tell you where to go, where the hunting's mm-hmm. good, or anything. You got to research that part. Okay. They just you're paying them to dump you off and pick you up on a certain date.
0: And, and you get two buck tags for this hunt? I've
2: only I've gotten two in the past. Um I normally only get one and focus trying to get a buck that I want. Mm-hmm. And uh it used to be a little cheaper to get multiple buck tags cuz uh they were only 70 or the license was $85 for a non-resident. The tags were 150. And depending on where where in Alaska you were, you could buy anywhere from 2 to 5, you know, and oh. Oh. Uh, but january 1st of this year everything doubled for non-residents it had been i don't know 20 years since alaska had raised their rates and so they were due for an increase but doubling it kind of hurts the pocketbook oh, yeah. Yeah. so a license is the license didn't quite double but it's 160 i think and the tags
1: did double so they're 300 dollars for a deer tag and um well it sounds like logistically too you get a cup a group of four guys and You know, getting four deer and the meat and, you know, everything's probably kind of maxed out anyway, right? Yes.
2: You know, I working up a deer in that setting, boning it out, taking care of the cape, if you want to keep the cape, scraping the skull plate, and managing the scent and that meat for the rest of your trip, I think it's a lot of work. Yeah. And uh, depending on how far you had to pack it in. And so one is kind of enough for me.
1: Yeah. And and so your meat, when you get it back, do you sink it in the lake? Do you put it in bags? And I've heard of that. So
2: before. those five-gallon five buckets that I mentioned uh, storing mm-hmm. food in, mm-hmm. I usually buy some of those from the local hardware when I get to Kodiak. I'll buy six or seven of those buckets um, if my air taxi doesn't already have some leftover that I left there last year. That's something I'm not going to bring home, but oftentimes they'll have them from last year. And they have lids that seal with a rubber gasket, you know, and I will store the meat, the boned-out meat in there and set it out in a lake if I'm if I'm on a lake that's shallow enough to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're in a place with some big enough alders or spruce trees or something, you can hang it up in a tree, uh, but you want to keep it dry. So I always take a small tarp to make a little uh, a little roof over the meat if I'm going to hang it. But you want to hang it where you can see it from a distance because if a bear comes in... You know, you want to know instead of surprising. Before you walk up on it to check your meat. Yeah. And, you know, meat care, it's better to hang meat and have air circulating mm-hmm. around it than it is sitting in a bucket sitting out in a lake. Mm-hmm. Um, but you just got to you gotta work with what you got. So yeah. the availability of trees, whether it's raining or not, um, and you take your game bags, uh, extra tarps, rope, so you're prepared to deal with either.
1: And uh, if you kill one early, is it? In the fee from the taxi service to have them come pick up meat? Or does it usually just work, they're coming at the end if you would have lucky?
2: To, it would cost more, Okay. and you'd have to arrange that. And now with satellite phones, it's practical to call in and ask for that. If bears were a problem really trying to get your meat, it might be worth it to say, if you're flying over this area, could you stop and pick up our meat because we're having some bear issues. Um, when I, My first several trips, that was before... Uh, sat phones were really yeah. a very available. Uh, you couldn't just go rent one, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, for safety's sake, we rent one every time. I used to not. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, you could request a meat pickup. Now, for moose and caribou hunts, yes, that's more of an issue because you got more a meat. A lot of meat. And sometimes they require extra flights anyway. But for deer, you're talking on a big buck on Kodiak, about 50 pounds of boned meat. Mm-hmm. And um, that's another thing... People have this misconception about Sitka Blacktail being little bitty deer. Well, Kodiak has a you know, kind of a maritime uh, climate influence right there off the ocean, so it's uh, they have good forage available most of the year. Some years they have hard winters, but for the last several, uh,
1: maybe the last five years, they've had fairly mild winters. And I've heard that's that there's like cycles, right, kind of thing they say on the deer populations up there. Yes, I've heard heard of guys going at the wrong time and they just had a horrible winter and it wipes out a lot of the deer
2: yep but usually it doesn't affect the whole island that's why you want to be able to uh, develop contacts that you trust up there not just some local that heard down at the hardware store what's going on but a biologist or an air taxi that you really trust and say you know ask them questions like what was the winter like on that northwest part of the island or what was it like on the southeast part of the island and they may say well you know we had a big deer kill on this section of the island, but it really didn't affect this other part. And this winter, this just the one we just came out of, I heard it was a little more severe than the previous four, um, but I don't think it was severe. The yeah. spring bear hunters that have been out just recently, they'll know. And I haven't talked to anyone yet, but yeah. I'll find that out before I go in September.
0: Uh, is, is the temperament and disposition of these deer like similar to the Columbia blacktail? where they're very nocturnal and skittish, or or are these deer a little more approachable? I mean, how would you describe that? Oh, I would say
2: they're much more approachable, at least where I hunt them in those more remote areas where the hunting pressure
1: is light. And do you ever run into guys while you're, you know, out there that time of year?
2: Never have. You know, we've seen a plane land on an adjacent lake, and um, they unload their gear and might be there for another five or six days and never see the guys. And
1: and does it... As far as that weather at the beginning of November, you get snow frequently, um, or is it still...
2: You, you'll get snow up on the mountains around you, Okay. but w- at the elevation where the deer are, which are the kind of medium to lower elevations, uh, usually not, but you can. We I've yeah. gotten snow there before. Uh, usually you get pretty cold nights um, and some drizzly rain, and uh, you want to wear... I, I like perfect, wearing wool and perfect, that kind of thing. weather, yeah. 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 Um, but back to your question about the temperament... Um, I believe, uh, Colombian white or Colombian blacktails are probably a lot more challenging to hunt because of the hunting pressure, because they are very nocturnal. Um, these blacktails where I hunt them up there, you can see a long ways, you know, there, there's brush like alder and willow and things, but there's a lot of grasslands where I hunt on that far Southwestern part of the Island and Northwestern part. Um, you can just spot them from a long ways away and, uh, because of light hunting pressure, uh, they're just not as skittish. Now, if they smell you or you get within a range that makes them nervous, yeah, they're going to run just like any other deer. But um, this last trip in 2016, when Russ and I were up there together, we were in a place that it, these deer acted like they'd never seen a human before. We were calling deer in to literally feet from us. And a lot of people may doubt this or not not believe it but russ actually had a little forking horn one day to come up to his call it walked right up and put his nose on the back of his thigh and russ said he looked down and he had an antler on either side of his leg and this buck is rubbing its forehead on the back of his thigh <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, and doe bleats wow yes that we were doing calls. It, can't tell you it, was. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was it, it, it was doe calls yeah and they seemed to work in the first half of our the period we were up there best and once the bucks started really pairing up with does, it seemed to be a little less effective. They would look at us, but they wouldn't just run in. And I knew I didn't doubt Russ's story at all because i had already called in three or four bucks to literally three feet from me. Oh, and I'm just frozen, enjoying the experience, and watch them come up and rub a willow, literally a few feet from my from my feet. And they look at me like they don't know what I am. They're just yeah. they're rut crazed. And in that case, you know, I, I said, Why well, no I'm not, I saw some tremendous bucks and I'm not going to shoot one early and have to deal with the meat for the next eight days. And with the way this hunting's going, I'm just going to wait till <laughs> before the plane comes, I'm going to shoot a big one right there by the tent. Well, it didn't quite happen that way. I ended up shooting an okay buck about. Two or three hundred yards from camp on the next to the last day, yeah. and yeah. Russ Russ just happened to watch me. Uh, he have he found me in his binoculars as soon as I came to full draw and and released, and then he watched the buck run and go down.
1: Um, but you passed up bigger bucks before I that. did. <laughs> I I regret uh,
2: passing up bigger bucks earlier in that hunt.
0: But yeah. So I'm picturing this to kind of go down like a not quite a sp- it's like a spot and stock, but they're not bedded. They're moving around, right? So they're kind of rutting and then you get in close and then you're calling them into the distance or I mean yes that's basically how Well
2: it's, go- it's either that you're call trying to call them in from you know once you you get into their range or you intercept them while they're moving okay or you just spot and stalk them any of this combination depending on what the wind's doing and yeah. the behavior of the deer now I will throw in a a major caution about the calling uh and I know people who have hunted Kodiak that might hear this are going to say this guy's crazy it's just a matter of time before he's going to call a bear in that's going to kill him. <laughs> I'm very particular about the setting that I'll do that in, and I'll get in a place where it's very open, and I don't use a call that blasts out there like a like a fawn in distress or something. Right. It's a very quiet call, and um, I'll do it for a few minutes at at a buck that I'm already watching, always thinking that a bear might hear this and come in. Right. So. It is risky, um, especially. I would never go into a thicket and start doing this call, hoping that a big buck will come in. Yeah. That's that's just a recipe for disaster.
0: Are you using any rattling, um, rattling horns or rattling bags?
2: I never have. Well, I have. I've tried it. I haven't had any success with rattling. Um, so I I only tried that on one trip. Yeah. You will find uh, shed antlers up there. I I find a few every time I go. So if you wanted to try it, you could, but I don't think it's necessary.
0: Okay. And um, we've got this great picture of you um, with uh, the deer hat on with the ears. I, I've seen, we've got a photo of you with this uh, deer hat on and I've seen uh, D Jones and Dwight and Roy Roth and all those guys uh, on Kodiak with those hats on. I've seen the footage of, it's pretty amazing footage of how these deer act when they see that. And you, Can you uh, elaborate a little bit of your experience uh, wearing that uh, hat with the, with sure. the deer ears? Sure.
2: Yeah, that's another one that can draw some criticism. Then a unit that you could shoot a buck or a doe, and you're sharing the area with rifle hunters. That would be a risky deal. Um, yeah. We were on, it's the Kodiak unit, unit 8, but we were on an island, uh, not on the mainland. We knew that there were not other people there. Yeah. We knew it from our pilot. And um, if, we'd had, if we'd have been sharing that area with rifle hunters, I would not put those things on my head. But what I did, I'm a, I do a little taxidermy as a side business, and I used ear liners taxidermy ear liners for my deer okay. and I, s- I drilled holes in them and to put a piece of wire that fit on the edge of my hat with these Filson oil skin hats and um Tom was Dr. Tom Van Ash was with me on this particular stalk and we saw this kind of a small buck maybe a half mile away and there were lots of these little hills between us and that deer the wind was just howling um and on that trip I think I was carrying my high sierra uh recurve by fox archery and um i stalked to the next little hill just just before getting to the buck where i knew he was bedded i had not seen him come out so i knew he must still be there and when i popped my head up over that hill there he was at about 15 yards and he stood up he took a couple steps and he stopped and looked back at me and just stared at me of course i had an arrow on before i ever crested the top of that and i just plugged him right in the boiler room and uh I think I don't know. Maybe it would have done the same thing if I hadn't had the ears. But I'm convinced that he <laughs> saw that outline and thought, "Hey, there's another deer," and yeah. he it paused just long enough to give me the shot. That's the only time I've used that. I haven't taken it on subsequent trips because I just haven't needed it. Yeah. Uh, but that same trip was a was a really good one uh, where I killed a couple foxes. There were four of us, and we got eight bucks and three. Three or four foxes, all with traditional bows. Wow! And um, the second buck I got was much bigger than the one you saw the picture of, uh, and that one I called in with a doe call. Nice. So,
0: were the foxes did those come into the calls, or were that just something you ran into while stalking, or?
2: Well, uh, I would see them and then target them, and you were allowed two uh, two up there without a extra license or tag or anything. They're introduced, um, so the, they're not native to the island, and they come in several colors, but they're all the red fox species, but you got cross foxes, grays, reds, and, uh, just multicolored. that really, really beautiful foxes, and the first one I killed, I was on the beach, just kind of beach combing, and there was always some bucks near the beach, and I see this cross fox feeding on the beach, he's, like, digging for morsels of food on the beach, and, um... I stalked for maybe a quarter to a half mile. He kept moving, I kept moving. Finally, I got right up next to him. He was about 18 yards away, feeding behind this log, and I could see his whole torso, and I thought, this thing's dead. So I drew back, I shot right over him, and he took off running. So I missed an easy, standing, still, 18-yard shot. And this fox is running up the steep cut bank on the edge of the ocean there, I put another arrow on and skewered him at 35, uh, about 35 yards on a dead run. <laughs> and down he came <laughs> dead on the beach. Went in right behind his rib cage and came out his neck on the opposite
1: side. Nice. It's like, I can't make easy shot. You didn't, got, you didn't, think, about shot, it, you didn't think about the second shot. You just it, was it. Like, it was yep. like shooting a shotgun, yep. you know. It
0: was that, I seen a photo, some of those photos, was that one gray or black? Or it was,
2: that was the cross fox, so grayish. And the reason you call them fox, or cross fox, if you look at the back straight down, it has a cross pattern. Okay. And uh it's just a name for that color phase. Okay. And uh then the black one, I think I might have sent yeah. you a picture of that black one. That was one I killed a day later. I saw it mousing and I stalked over this knob and I shot it at about five feet. Oh. It it had no idea I was there, the wind
1: was howling and um yeah, so <laughs> Sounds Very like cool. paradise. Yeah. So when you when you go on these trips, how much time do you usually block out? You going for a week or two weeks or
2: Well for deer, um I generally like to have about seven days minimum of hunting days, okay. seven to nine. After that, I'm ready to get a shower. And so seven to nine, there. how hunting. many,
0: yeah, hunting days. So how many days total is that?
2: I like to plan for weather days and uh, just unforeseen delays that you might run into. And what's it take,
0: two and a half days to get there?
2: No. Yeah, if I leave Lagrand, I like to fly out of Pasco. You go to Seattle, Anchorage, Kodiak. A lot of times the very next day, uh, you, you'll be there the same day, you know, and then if everything works out, the weather's good, then you can fly out the next day and start hunting. But I have sat there in Kodiak for a couple days, two to three days uh, waiting because sometimes the weather might be really bad in Kodiak so we can't take off. Other times uh, it looks nice in Kodiak, but on the south end of the island where you're going, there's a storm and it's socked in or it's blowing and they can't fly so you got to coordinate and just keep communicating with your pilot and find out and be ready at a moment's notice when he's ready to get you out so
0: how would you recommend like a guy like me that's never been to start that research and you know um an estimation of you know how much something like this would cost you know from start to finish for the most part and you know can you kind of speak to that
2: yeah i could try um you want to, like I said, schedule enough uh, enough days and account for maybe, I like to add two to three days on either end of the trip just to allow for some flexibility. Because if you are stuck there in Kodiak for an extra two days and you only planned for seven hunting, now you only got five. Mm-hmm. But if you left a couple on the end of the hunt, maybe you can still get your seven, your seven days in. Okay. Um, so hotel, your flight up there, your license and tags, all those things uh, they add up, but the biggest cost by far is going to be your bush plane flight. If you're doing it like I'm doing it, you know the boat deal is a whole different right. thing where you're paying probably twenty-five or hundred dollars or three thousand bucks, you know, for the boat to host yeah. you. I can usually do that hunt for between twenty-five hundred and three thousand dollars, all inclusive,
1: all, all tickets paid, everything. Yep,
2: but uh, so to qualify that a little bit. I've accumulated the clothes, the boots, mm-hmm. the tent, yeah. the stove, all yeah. that gear yeah. that I just but, keep using.
0: But yeah, so not the gear, but as far as yep. just getting there, is that also getting your uh, meat and head back? Yes,
2: yeah. yep. And and lately, I've been earning enough uh, miles on my Alaska airline, so I'm flying like this this upcoming Kodiak trip. I'll be flying for free because uh, I had enough points. I got enough to. To get two trips up there right nice and deer are small enough to where you can get a whole deer boned out into one of those fish boxes that hits about 50 pounds mm-hmm. your air taxi or your hotel will always have a will make sure they have a, a freezer the ones i okay. use have a walk-in freezer so that meat can get frozen and in those boxes and taped up and labeled ready for the flight home and Alaska Airlines pretty darn good at handling fish boxes and meat boxes. They know, they mm-hmm. they try to keep them cold for you. And the racks are so small. I like to clean them up good and figure out a way to protect them and my gear from the points and have them in my luggage. So there's no questions asked. Airlines do not even Alaska Airlines do not like flying antlers. There's okay. there's so much liability. They get broken or they poke through your luggage mm-hmm. and ruin someone else's luggage. And if your antlers get broken, you try to sue them to pay for your next hunt. Yeah. <laughs> they just, so they, <laughs> they don't want that. Most airlines try to make flying antlers as inconvenient and costly as they can. Okay. And it's more of an issue with caribou and moose, moose yeah. but deer, um, you can figure out a way to get them in your duffel and, huh. but you want to scrape all that meat off the skull plate and get them, get it good and clean. So it's not leaking on your clothes. And
1: now I know you, by now you've got enough contacts up there. You've hunted up there enough. Like he's saying for the guy just starting, so you're just gonna get some maps, pick out some lakes. Like, how do you go about? Like, that looks good. You know, are you you said you're kind of going for the middle elevation? Are you just picking a lake that looks big enough to land on, far enough from a road, and then you call the taxi service? And and then yeah, how are you
0: picking out a reliable taxi? I mean, how would looking back, you know, if you were to do it all over again, how are you finding a reliable guy to fly you in?
2: Well. It goes back to our this incredible network of traditional archers. Uh, Absolutely, uh, Larry D. Jones said Jack Lechner is one of the best pilots on that island. He flies. Uh, Oh, what's his name Chuck, Chuck Adams, Adams. Yeah. Yeah. and I used to, uh, so I flew with him the first couple trips up there okay. and he was a great guy he retired
0: but S- so being being a part of TAO and Backcountry Hunters yep. and Anglers and you just and, ask people yeah PBS these organizations you meet people yeah. and, and they lead you in the right directions yep.
2: and Kodiak's one of these places you don't have a lot of you just don't have these fly by night guys coming in doing that you've got Andrews uh, I think it's called Skyhawk or Hawk Air or Island Air, three really reputable, bigger uh, air taxis that have, well, Andrews has multiple planes. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't remember, one of those, I think only has one or two planes, but they all have really good reputations. Okay. And uh, once you get used to knowing who's there and they know you, you know what equipment you don't have to bring up because they already have it. Little things like bear spray, butane, Cape Salt, those kind of things. You don't wanna yeah, have to buy those buckets. Yeah, every yeah. time you go. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, asking friends who have been there and you know, and I think it's um the more friends you have to ask who have been there, you're better off. And just take take a lot of notes, you start putting all this together and say, Well in September, I know icing over lake's not gonna be an issue. I can spot I can spot and stalk bachelor groups of bucks up at these high elevations and probably not have bear problems. And uh, get on Google Earth. That was a resource that I didn't have my first few trips, but now it's yeah. incredible. Yeah, You find a few of these lakes, and then you call that air service you've narrowed it down to and say, this is where I'm thinking of going. And, you know, typically they'll say, yeah, that's a good area. That, that's okay. perfect. We can land our 206 there, or we can't get our our super cub, or we can't get our uh, a beaver off that lake loaded. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have to do a 206 we can't haul five guys in there, and
1: so that's going to cost you more. And more yeah, planes. Yeah. All that's part end. of the consideration. And,
2: yeah. and so
0: here on the Oregon coast, my favorite time—I shouldn't say my favorite time, because it's rifle season. Um, my the best time I'm seeing uh, rutting activity, that pre-rut. Uh, my birthday is October 28th mm-hmm. through November 7th. I mean, I'm, I've been contemplating on getting the general season rifle tag and using my longboat because. Once our season starts, the fourteenth, sixteenth, or whatever, it's kind of tapering down. So in Alaska, is that a is that into October being in November? Is that prime time like it is here?
2: In my experience, I think you hit it dead on. Dead on. Yep, and um, and it can change over just between days, literally. Mm -hmm. Uh, This past trip, when Russ Morgan and I were there, like I think I mentioned earlier, the first part of our trip, the the bucks were responding to our calls incredibly i mean just running in and they were generally not uh really ho- hooked up with does now they were they were uh chasing does and and trying to yeah pretty to right. hook up with them yeah. yeah but they weren't like paired up yeah and a little bit after about halfway through our trip we noticed that a lot of the bigger bucks were paired up and we would call to them and they they might yeah. look at us, they might not. They were not interested in running in. Right. The little bucks, yeah, they were still going crazy. Yeah. Um, and then on th- the earlier hunt, the one I mentioned, we killed some foxes on. Uh, that one, Tom, Tom Van Ash, he was showing me how to use a a mouth call that did a, a doe bleat. And this this particular area is not known for having bears. I'm sure they could make it over there, but
0: you just they never see bears there. Do you use the can call?
2: On this last trip, I did mm-hmm. not. Earlier, I haven't, though.
0: I've, kept I've used it quite a bit on the coast with good success. It worked really well on yeah. Kodiak.
2: Yeah. But this mouth call, Tom was telling me about previous trips where he just blows on it and these deer run in and you just take your pick and shoot which <laughs> one you want. <laughs> so I was skeptical, and we go out there together and we see a group of bucks, Tom blows on that thing, and they don't even raise their heads. We do this for a couple of days, and then something switched. And this was also that late October, early November period. Yeah. The very next day after we had had... No success for about three days. We did the same thing, and these deer just ran to us. <laughs> and I remember Tom and I are in about six-inch grass, middle of a wide-open, uh, no cover, and I've got an arrow on my string to back him up. And uh, he, he doesn't even have his bow picked up. It's laying there in front of him, and these three bucks come up to us to about 10 yards. And I'm thinking, when is he going to pick the bow up? <laughs> and these deer are looking at us, and he, he picks up his bow, he takes an arrow out of his quiver, and he raises up, and he shoots one of these bucks. And it didn't look like the greatest hit. So when they took off, I shot the same one on a run and hit it. His arrow was lethal after all, but it it had cut the femoral artery back where it runs near the kidneys. Okay. Mine hit it in the femoral in the leg. Or aorta is what he hit. I'm sorry. I hit the femoral because it was on a dead run. Yeah. That deer didn't make it 50 yards. <laughs> mm. Um but I couldn't believe how uh, oblivious these deer were to us. They, it was like they had so never seen people. Sudden, yeah. And then um, I got my bigger buck later from using the call like that. And I had been making mistakes. I'd been taking these deer for granted because you hear about guys will go up and buy five tags and shoot five Pope and Young bucks. And so you think it's really easy. And I had been taking them for granted, and I was blowing stalk after stalk. They would see me, they'd hear me, smell me or something. And so finally I said, I told myself, you've got to think about this as the hardest to hunt species ever. It's a psychological thing. And take a few steps, glass every bit of this landscape, take a few more steps, glass every bit, and do not take these things for granted. Pretend you're hunting the wisest big old mule deer you possibly can. So my whole mind frame shifted after that, and I see, I eventually come across this really big heavy buck. And he's about maybe 100, 150 yards away. And I blew on that call, and his ears immediately laid back. He, he jetted his rack out upward and kind of forward and started this stiff-legged walk in, a, in an arc around me, back toward me. He comes all the way in, and I had an arrow on my string. And he stops at about 20 or 25 yards, and I shot him. And the arrow looked pretty good, but he ran out to about thirty or thirty-five and stopped and turned around like he was confused. And I put another arrow in him. <laughs> and when I found him, he had two arrows about two inches apart, right through the boiler oh, room. Oh, full, pass, awesome. full pass, full pass throughs. And that was with that fox recurve. And, that's um, awesome.
1: That so yeah, let's talk a little bit about your setup. Uh, you you've been hunting all over, obviously, you know. So what do you what have you settled on shooting now? Like what what weight bows, arrows, yeah, broadheads? What, what weight do you quivers? shoot?
3: Well,
2: I can't say it's... I haven't settled into a particular system, but the thing I mostly use... So my bow right now is a Thunderhorn uh, takedown long bow, 58 inches long, because I'm fairly short, and I have a 26 and a half inch draw. It shoots 59 pounds at 26 and a half inches. inches. Um, I usually shoot uh, Doug fur shafts. I get from Sherwood and then make them up myself. Mm-hmm. I, I like... Uh, uh, 145, a bowyer, a uh, single bevel head. The That's
0: brown bear head or the white tail head? Or? Actually,
2: it's called the, I think it's the javelina. The javelina, the Havelina. okay. I think it's the javelina. Yeah. Yeah. There's a javelina and an antelope. I can't remember which. Yeah. I, I've used them both. Um, but that? I'll also use a uh, the woodsman, that three-style head. Yeah. I've used magnus. A lot of those are good heads. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I like a fairly heavy arrow. Uh, I try to go for about eight to ten grains per pound to pull. So, my arrows are usually 580 to 600 Seven. grains. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and I've have lately, I've been trying some of Brent Hahn's, uh, the Valkyrie yeah. system that mm-hmm. he's using. Mm-hmm. I killed my last blacktail with one of those. Mm-hmm. And they fly wonderfully out of my longbow and my high Sierra recurve. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll probably carry those on my goat hunt. I okay. was pretty impressed. I, I shot that deer last year with my, I also have a 54 pound. Uh, thunder Thunderhorn longbow because mm-hmm. uh, I wanted to back off weight a little bit uh, after a neck injury a few years ago so but I'm back to shooting the 50, 59 or the fifty four mm-hmm. pounder but I shot this deer with my fifty four and that head and that shaft performed really well
0: and you sound like you also have a bow from Ron King yeah yeah, yeah. that that's
2: the High Sierra High Sierra I carried it on my uh, spring bear hunt this year up in Canada but I never got a shot with it okay and I was carrying Brent's arrows and okay. and his uh. Uh, the jagger yeah three-blade head
0: yeah i shot a uh three-point columbia black tail out of a tree sand this year with the he calls it the blood eagle it's the ja- okay. the the screw-in version of the jagger
2: gotcha okay yeah. and you know that system is it flies they fly really nice um aesthetically i like wood i enjoy making wood
3: i, I, I li- just switched to wood
2: yeah I, I like the feel of it um you know, Brent gives me crap, and I carry his stuff. And then I tell <laughs> yeah. him I killed something with I, wood. He's he, like, "What are you
1: doing?" Yeah, yeah he, he's <laughs> Thanks, a buddy. Brent's a good friend of mine too.
0: And I t- and I told him I said, "Yeah, I'm I'm, uh, I'm I went with Sherwood shafts this year, single bevel heads." He was like, "What? You're going backwards?" <laughs> I'm like, "No, I am home. I love it. I'm you know, in love with wood arrows right now." I figure
3: dead is dead. You yeah. can't yeah. you dead can't dead. be any deader. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah, and they've worked for me in the past. And but I'm. You know, being at high elevation, where you could have a lot of winds.
0: Yeah, the high FOC with minimal yeah. fletching, it, yep. it has it has its merit.
2: They do, and I carried them on a hunt. Uh, I was not successful with the bow, but to Kyrgyzstan last year, hunting mid Asian ibex, I was oh, hunting wow. almost fifteen thousand feet, mm. and um, there's not a lot of oxygen up there, and we had some serious winds, and uh, I carried my long bow with with those arrows of Brent's, and uh, my guides and all were fascinated with the bow; they'd never seen one before. And that, must,
0: that must have been some logistics getting into that country, huh? Uh,
2: it, it wasn't too bad. Okay, it was an it, it was an adventure. Just yeah. getting over there was part mm-hmm. of the adventure. Yeah. Traveling yeah. by myself was—I just wanted to see if I could do it, and uh, it was a wonderful trip. Uh, but after about three days of carrying that longbow, I realized I couldn't get within a quarter mile of these ibex, much mm-hmm. less within. 30 yards of one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, they were truly wild. We were hunting off a of horseback. We would ride and then uh, get off and do the foot stalk. Wow. And these things have been hunted for hundreds of years off a of horseback. So yeah. But it was an amazing experience. I'd set. like to do it again.
0: So uh, getting back to Kodiak. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> with, with the with the uh, goat, is that something with press points? I don't know how that works. Or is that something you lucked out and drew or something you've been planning towards? How, tell so us th- a, a little bit about how that
2: Okay. Well, there's not a point system, uh, and so a Kodiak's broke up into ser- in a f- several units for goat. And then there's, of course, goats in the southeastern part of the state and other mountain ranges in Alaska. So you apply for, uh, for a particular unit, and a non-resident has to have a guide or hunt with a relative of Alaska. I don't have relatives up there. I'd met a guide at the sheep show in Reno a couple years ago that I really hit it off with, and he had a offered a good goat hunt, and I told him I was interested in trying it with a longbow. And he says, "Well, I haven't guided a traditional archer yet, but I'm 100% success with rifle and compound hunters." And he says, "But I've gotten some of my compound hunters just scary close to these things." And uh, I said, "Well, I like the sound of that, <laughs> you know." So I, you and so when I applied, I needed to use his uh, guide outfitter license number or whatever to to apply. So they knew I'd already contacted by someone. And I think the unit I applied for, I had about a 10% chance of drawing it. So it's better than anywhere in the lower 48, but still not Not a guarantee. And, um, and I think we, we applied for three choices and I drew my first choice, which is a fly in unit. Some of them you can hike into. Um, you basically, your guide drives you out, you park at a trailhead, you hike up into the goat country and you hunt. Um, I'm hoping this fly-in unit I'm going to might have a little bit less pressure because locals would also have to either have their own plane or hire a plane. Because
1: for locals, is it over-the-counter goat tag, or do they have to go it also? They have a a program
2: called registration
1: hunts, and I don't
2: fully understand how this works for residents, but I do know residents can kill more than one goat on Kodiak. I don't know if it's guaranteed or over-the-counter, but... um, the state is trying to knock those populations back because they, it's an introduced species on Kodiak, okay. and they've been performing better than they ever anticipated, and they're wanting to get those populations back down some. So there's a lot of opportunity, and I know residents can kill at least two. Wow. Um, my tag's good for one, mm-hmm. and you know to play the game where I saved a little bit of money this year, I knew the Alaska uh, Fishing Games said that if you buy your license and tags for 2017 before. January 1st. You can buy them at, at the old prices. Well, I took a little gamble, and I thought, well, you can hang a more expensive animal tag on a less expensive t- species up there. So a caribou tag for a non-resident was 325 bucks. A goat tag was 300 bucks. So I bought a caribou tag, and I bought a license that cost me, uh, right up, you know, five, well, let's see, $85 plus, uh, three and a quarter Mm -hmm. and uh knowing that if i didn't draw the goat then i would just go caribou hunting and uh but if i did draw the goat then i'll just not buy a goat tag but i'll get the harvest ticket which is free and hang my caribou tag on the
1: goat
0: And I called this guy a slow learner. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take that back.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was a little gamble. I'm just going to start doing that. I'm just going to buy an Alaska tag, (laughs) and then I'll just tell my wife, I didn't draw, but I got to go anyway. I got the tag. (laughs) Well, Tom and I were going
2: to hunt the hall road together this year if I didn't draw it. But he found someone else to go with him. Uh, It was one of these things, the timing wasn't perfect because he had lined up renting a vehicle and a camper like Naradka Mm -hmm. had. Yeah. And, um, was going to go regardless and he and i we were going to need to do a hunt together we haven't done one in, in a few years here uh but anyway it worked out where i drew the goat tag he found someone else to go caribou hunting with him and we're going to be there about the same time sweet so yeah, that
3: that's sounds, awesome sounds uh, awesome uh,
0: after you uh get yourself a nice big belly, we'll have to get you back on and tell the story uh <laughs> speaking of stories um we would really like to get a hunting story um, maybe one of your most memorable sitka blacktails. it doesn't have to be your biggest buck you know, just uh, something that comes to mind. I'd, I'd love to get a, you know, a good start to finish with some details, uh, something juicy. Sick of Blacktail are mm. high on my list. Um, I'm a Blacktail freak. And, <laughs> and and Sick of Blacktail, even though their racks are smaller, I think they're more attractive. They've got just that short muzzle and they just uh, are so compact. And uh, yeah, I'm really into them. They're, they're awesome.
2: Oh, I agree. Um, I, I think they're the one of the most handsome deer and especially in the later part of the season when their coats are very chocolate their hair is long the their black patch on their forehead is usually very black some of the older bucks they get very gray Mm -hmm. um you mentioned the short muzzle i just think they're, they're gorgeous deer too they are yeah and the majority of the bucks have uh, double white neck patches. Yeah, exactly. So even in fog and at long distances, you can tell it's a buck. Yeah. So you better pull out your spotting scope or your binox.
0: Yeah. Those, um, those double those double throat patches really do it for me. Yeah, too. Yeah.
2: They're pretty. Um, I've I've really told you the best of my deer hunting stories from up there already. With the one that I called it in, shot it twice. That's probably my favorite. <laughs> I'll I'll share another one that's not about killing a deer, but it was on the Sitka hunt. And it's, it was kind of the lead up to the day that we started having the horrible bear the next two nights, there was bear problems. That was great. Um, Tom and I had agreed to go in opposite directions that day. And I remember walking out towards the beach, which was about three miles away, out through the big flat. And um, you walk through these areas. It looks like maybe they used to be a pond, but they sedimented in, and now they're kind of a... A bog. A bog, yeah. Mm. And deer trails and bear trails are going through them. And some of them, just the vegetation's a different color than the next one you might walk through. So you just kind of remember that what this one looks like, size and color-wise. And then you go through some brush and you hit another one. I did this for a few miles, and then I stopped over lo- looking at this hillside above me. And I um, uh, stopped to have a snack. I pulled out a piece of jerky and a candy bar and some water. And I noticed this doe walk across the hill with a pretty nice buck with his nose right on her tail. He was, he was really right behind her, pursuing her. And uh, they were maybe three or 400 yards away. And as I sat there having my snack and eating, drinking my water, a few minutes later another buck comes on the exact same path, nose to the ground. And then another one. And I sat there for almost an hour, and I think five bucks... Four or five bucks, different ones, walked on that exact same path with their nose to the ground in the same direction. That was a hot doe, and she was leaving a trail. and these bucks were just totally onto it and I thought, what am I doing out here? I need to go up on that hillside and sit downwind of that trail and shoot the next buck that walks by. <laughs> so I go- I climb up there and at the moment the wind was going uphill, so I get above the trail about ten yards. And it was kind of a convex slope, so I couldn't see things approaching until they were almost in my lap. But I I like that. I like really close shots if I can get them with my traditional bows. And I hadn't sat there for maybe 20 minutes, and uh, I see antlers coming about 20 yards away. And it's a pretty nice buck. And it walks up, it hits the trail, it walks by me, and when it gets quartering away, I threw an arrow right over its back. (laughs) <laughs> didn't pick a spot. I'm not sure I made it to anchor. Uh it it trotted out there a little further and stopped and looked around. I looked at the 12, I I was carrying a 12 gauge that day. I looked at it and I thought I could shoot it with this 12 gauge, but that's not what I came here for. <laughs> so that deer took off and um I, and I just happened to glance back down at the spot that I had been sitting having my jerky and it looks like there's this big brown Volkswagen sitting in that very spot. <laughs> And so I raised the binoculars, and I thought, holy crap, that's a bear. That's a really big bear. And he's, I don't know, 300 yards away, pawing right there where I'd been sitting. Mm. And so my heart starts racing a little bit, and um, then I notice it starts walking, and I see it walk through one of those boggy areas, and then another one, and then I start putting it together in my head. That's my exact trail (laughs) that I came in, and he's doing it on the back trail. Well, where's that going to lead him? right where i started which is camp Uh-oh. and camp is unattended right now because all of us are out hunting in different areas and so i thought i better take a, a shortcut and go back to camp and um i started walking at a pretty good clip trying to get back to camp um in a in a shorter route than that bear was taking and then i see tom waving at me frantically and he runs up to me and he's dripping sweat and he explains that he had just uh had been, it popped out in this opening and there's a bear and it raises up and looks at him. Well, he turns around and skedaddles, Tom does, <laughs> and starts putting distance between him and that bear. And he said, after about 20 minutes of going hard, I pop out in this opening, I start to take a big sigh of or breath of relief. I look up, there's another bear standing there. <laughs> he says, I can't get away from these friggin' things. <laughs> so, and I, so I told him my story and I said, well, I got one that's on its way back to camp right now. <laughs> So we went back to camp together, and uh, that was the start of that nightmare.
0: That's why you didn't want to go out and pack the buck. <laughs> exactly.
2: Exactly. <laughs> oh, it was that man. night that our buddy came in, man. and I was shooting that uh, Bob Lee recurve at that time yeah. still. Tom was shooting, a, I think, a Doug Knight recurve. He's a lefty. And uh, our friend from Missouri that was with us, he was shooting a Matthews high-tech compound for the day. And he saw how much fun Tom and I were having with those bows. We were shooting them all the time in camp. Well, that this guy, we we got a new victim there. He he went <laughs> home and bought himself a Black Widow longbow, and he got the bug, and he's hunted with it ever since. Uh, so we converted uh, one guy on that trip. That, that's great. So,
0: so, I, I had one guy say, yeah, um, welcome to the dark side. I'm like, no, this is the light side. We brought you out of the dark and into the light. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> oh, that is great. Well, uh Thank you so much for, uh, you know, giving us uh, some of your time and telling us about your uh, adventures. Uh, Kodiak Allen sounds like a blast, and it's on my bucket list, and hopefully uh, me and Robert can uh,
1: find a way to make it Yeah, definitely got to do it now. That just sounds like paradise. (laughs) Well, besides the
2: bears. (laughs) You know, but the bears sure add to the experience, and you got to exercise your bear etiquette 100%. Respect those things. Don't get complacent. And I describe that island as just raw and in a in a wild and exciting way. Yeah, it's not the most comfortable hunt if you do it in a tent because of the weather, the bears, how to deal with food, the wind, and all that. But it's very satisfying. It's
1: exciting. It's an adventure. Man, I can't yeah. wait! I can't wait. Awesome.
0: Well, and thank you very much.
1: We'll definitely have to get you back on here. I mean, you've hunted all over the world and. I love hearing your stories, man. Thank you. I enjoyed your time.
0: That's great. Uh, Yeah, maybe we'll get a chance to learn a lot with you. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everyone, again, for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, TuneIn, Blueberry. Check us out on our website at TragQuest.com.
1: And check us out on Facebook and Instagram at TragQuest. Our personal pages blacktail net bob the bow hunter and thanks for listening